and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital editor of the magazine. After a nightmarishly long campaign season, it's finally election day in the U.S., which is one of the few nonpartisan things I can say about this whole ordeal. Pundits on the right and the left have grumbled that this election is the nadir of our democracy, but those of us who take a longer view of history would beg to differ. For this episode, I was joined by two men whose careers were shaped by the politics of their day. Walter Bernstein, a Hollywood screenwriter who was blacklisted in the 50s, and Edmundo Desnos, the novelist and screenwriter of the classic Cuban film Memories of Underdevelopment. Both writers discuss their firsthand experiences with censorship and offer their thoughts on the current realities of film production and resistance. In a few weeks, we'll have a second episode dedicated to political filmmaking in Iran, Brazil, and Turkey. Here's our conversation. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by... I'm Walter Bernstein. I'm a writer. I write mostly movies. I'm Edmundo Desnos. I am a Cuban writer. Well, thank you both for coming today. This is sort of is tied to the election that's happening. This is going to air on the day of the election. You've each had respective experiences as screenwriters that are inextricably tied to politics. And both of you started off writing fiction and a little journalism as well. Can you talk about what motivated you to go into film? I went into film because I've always loved movies. And uh, I've always wanted to go to Hollywood, which is where you went when I was growing up, if you wrote movies. And it was considered, if not disreputable, it was a not considered serious. I mean, if you wanted to be a serious writer, you wrote plays or poems or novels. Writing movies meant Hollywood, and Hollywood meant serious corruption. But I always wanted to write movies. I wanted to be part of that process. And at the first opportunity, I went. Well, I'm the author of a novel called The Memories of Underdevelopment. Yes, a wonderful and novel. And when I uh, wrote it, I had the foggiest idea that it could be turned into a film. I thought it was all subjective, uh, interior subjective uh, considerations, but then the director, Tomás Gutiérrez Jalea, saw it visually, and we collaborated in this screenplay. And you've had a second film sort of based off of... Yeah, uh, I have two more films. Yes. I had the second one based on the novel. Uh, it was a diptych, the second novel, Memory of Development. That's mm -hmm. when I left Cuba, I came here. I wrote a novel about my life here in academia in the United States. And there's a third one based on... You taught, you taught at Dartmouth. I you taught at Dartmouth, at Smith, at Stanford. Uh, my school. <laughs> and... Uh, the second one is about the, the exile. At the end, he finds out he has a daughter that is, finds him in the United States. That he didn't know he had left in, in Cuba. Mother was pregnant, and she comes and encounters him. And it's about their relationship between a, a found daughter and a father before he dies. And something that made memories of underdevelopment sort of unique is that for the time at least that it had documentary footage of actual rallies actual events going on in Cuba at the time worked into the narrative and I guess I mean this approach is very popular now 
So mm. how do you see narrative and uh, uh, usually, I don't together. think it usually works. I mean, I think Sidney Pollock said, and he saw it as one of the few films where he saw documentary being an integral part, because we were writing history. So mm -hmm. I was writing about history, and the documentary was an extension of that history. What I year was it? This was, uh, the film was 67, the novel is 64. Mm -hmm. It's uh, just after the October crisis. So I, uh, I wor worked on the screenplay, but the idea of the documentary was uh, Titong, that's uh, the director's idea, maybe to contrast a little bit with the subjectivity and to protect himself maybe against possible censorship. Mm -hmm. You would have a, another point of view. You just said, you know, we were writing history. Do you feel like inserting documentary and using it in fictional context or having it exist side by side, do you feel like that is sort of an integral part of political filmmaking? No, no, I, on the contrary, I believe that uh, the problem with politics is it has no subjectivity. Mm -hmm. So uh, my contribution, if any, to uh, the novel and to the film is to include a subjective point of view of the experience of history. Mm -hmm. Through the character, you can enter history, you enter the Cuban Revolution. I think it's more authentic fiction than it is in a documentary. I would mm -hmm. say that writing is a mixture of reality and what you think reality could be. True reality is what happens to you and what you think could happen to you, or thinking about reactions that you didn't have. If I had known this, I had, would have done this or that. So to me, uh, fiction is much more complete than documentary. Walter, you lived through the blacklist. You were literally a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. You were involved, you were politically involved, you know, ever since you were young. How would you say, going through that experience, how would you characterize your work before that and afterward? Um, my work didn't change, essentially. It mm -hmm. uh, stayed the same. Perhaps, looking back on it, it was maybe less overtly political or... I didn't go looking for overtly political themes, possibly, but basically didn't change. Our relationship to things, personal or historical, obviously they change over time. And, you know, you wrote The Front and you also wrote The House on Carroll Street. And The Front had people who were actually blacklisted come together and collaborate on this thing that was about that event. And then The House on Carroll Street, you know, shot in the late 80s, you know, it sort of had a different crew on there. How would you characterize those two different experiences? The experience on the front was a very personal one. The director and I were close friends. We both had been blacklisted, and when we were cleared from the blacklist and could work again, we wanted to do a film about the blacklist. And our idea was uh, to tell a, a straightforward story of someone who's blacklisted, why he was blacklisted, what his politics were, what happened to him. We could never get anybody interested in doing it or raise any kind of money. And we talked about it over the years until finally, by happenstance, we came across the idea of going at the subject sideways and telling it as a comedy. And on that basis, we got some financing and were able to do the film. The house on Carroll Street was much more 
although it was an original script, that was something that was overtly political and about a political thing. It was not as personal for me. It was not a good experience for me. I didn't like the director. And uh, I thought he did a poor job. It was cast badly. So it, it was a different experience, totally. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Zero Mustal in the front, it's like his... He brings so much to it that it's like you can't, you can almost like not put it into words, like how, you know, he's sort of, you know, known as this broad vaudevillian Broadway guy. Then this is just so, it's so emotive. And, you know, he passed away the following year. And so it's such a beautiful sort of like, I don't want to say swan song, but just such a, a striking performance. So that's why I was curious about the mood on the set. Well, the mood on the set actually was a very good mood. We, Marty, the, the director, cast as many of the parts that were suitable with blacklisted actors. And so there was a kind of a feeling we survived. Mm -hmm. This was, in a sense, a kind of revenge that we were making. We were working again. So it was a very happy experience. And Mundo, your sort of political feelings have changed and you know that's reflected in your in the novels that you've written and you know sort of talking about these films I guess to what extent do you feel like memories of underdevelopment represents or does not accurately represent the revolution and you know well I think all experience is through the eyes of a writer so a certain subjectivity that's mm -hmm. what gives it meaning I mean that's why I don't think in, in terms of politics. I mean, there's a Spanish philosopher, Ortega Gasset, who said, you are you and your circumstance. Mm. So that was my circumstance, and I was lucky to have an experience where you had world attention. Mm -hmm. Usually don't, you don't have that in Latin America. If I had written my book in Nicaragua or in Venezuela, I would never have been worldwide known, translated, celebrated. So I was lucky, and then I was lucky with the actor who played the role of the character who is a sort of uh, he's been compared to Mastroianni so he's mm -hmm. a poor man's Mastroianni <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, was I think those elements the history the moment and whatever contribution I made my subjectivity my need to incorporate history into a uh, interior discourse I think made it I don't think in terms of of politics, or, and that is, uh, I think, why it has been seen uh, through the character, all the audiences in the world enter into the plot, into the, the Cuban Revolution. Otherwise, they wouldn't have any idea of the Cuban Revolution as an ex existential reality, you know? Mm -hmm. And through the, the character, you have this, this sense that maybe you, you felt it, or you discover it, or you invented it, but it's there. To what extent, when you were working on the screenplay, did you sort of write to his, adapt certain things to his strengths as an actor? Or no, no, not really? it was about me and whoever could find my, my voice, mm -hmm. my point of view, because I first wrote a novel which was impersonal. It was supposed to be a fresco to include all characters, all the classes, mm -hmm. this idea that you should write an epic thing. And it was a terrible failure. It, was, it had 50 characters. I wanted to include the whole revolution. Then I discovered that only through my memory, my interior voice, my experience, did the revolution come alive. Mm -hmm. Through the individual 
the whole becomes alive. And that was the, 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 the fact that it's written in first person. Mm -hmm. So then the actor happened to identify with it, although he's a, he's a great actor, but he didn't like acting in the film because he was very revolutionary. And he regretted having acted, and yet it's his only immortality. That's his only <laughs> thing worthwhile that he's done. But And can you talk about the process of, not necessarily early days, it wasn't like immediately post-revolution, you know, and there was a funding body dedicated specifically mm. to, you know, helping Cuban filmmakers, actors sort of get their work out there. Was there a process for submitting scripts or how did you, how would you approach? No, no, this was, uh, it was created, the Film Institute in Cuba, the ICAIC, mm -hmm. was created by the revolution. There was one of the, the director of it had been with Fidel, uh, supporting him politically and living in Mexico. Mm -hmm. He was working with Buñuel and he got funds for the film and then the director of it, Gutierrez Jalea was one of the directors that had done shorts before the revolution. Mm -hmm. And he, the one who read uh, Memories and said he wanted to do a film with it, he discovered it and Guevara, who was the director of this uh, film institute, had the policy that let the writer, the director, do whatever he wants and then after it's finished he would re revise it or censure it, but not before. Mm -hmm. And that was an advantage. He was probably the only political leader in Cuba that had a sense of, of culture, which was Alfredo Guevara, who died a couple of years ago. And he was the one that made it possible to a great extent against other obstacles, because in other areas it was not possible. But here you had a, politi a political leader that had an understanding of art as questioning. To what extent is that reflective or different from your experience? Your experience was, I think, rather more profound than mine. But yours was as dangerous as mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, artist is a dangerous mm -hmm. person when the system wants to be uh, demanding. Yeah. I was bl blacklisted for ten years. Well, I couldn't. Man. I couldn't work, and uh, I did get some work under different names, and I survived. I mean, the writers survived better than the actors or directors because they had to show their faces to work. Mm -hmm. He could hide behind fronts and uh, pseudonyms. It was a matter of survival. It was a matter of making a living. Well, that's, I think, the responsibility of an artist is to survive <laughs> more than That's <laughs> right. More than and anything. Yes. And you know, there's a, a content to survival. And it's a question of how you, you know, if you could survive and say fuck you at the same time mm -hmm. and, and make your own statement somewhere, you were very lucky. I was lucky. In, in my experience, you cannot confront a system as powerful as so you have to yeah. use indirect methods. How, do you, how did I convince him that this was, could be a revolutionary film is an important factor. How you uh, have a film, a novel that was celebrated in the New York Times all over, had translations, and I sold it as the fact that he was a bourgeois mentality that had great ideas but didn't act. Mm. You see the end of memories, he's alone with his uh, lighter and everybody else is involved in the revolution. So he was a bourgeois intellectual. On that basis, I sort of convinced him that this was a revolutionary because it proved that the bourgeois writer 
was unable to act. Right. When I believe that thinking and writing is an action of some sort or other, but I got away with it, so it was accepted in Cuba, not by the party. The, all the militants, the old communist militants in Cuba were against it, were strongly against the film, opposed it, but then it got very positively reviewed, and I once, I've been often called to the Central Committee to explain my behavior and why I write and why didn't I write about the working class and the oppressed. And uh, one of the things they did is they, he said, look, I hate memories, but it gave Cuba an international name. What could be more opportunistic <laughs> of a government with an ideology that's willing to risk the life of their citizens in, in a revolution than to say, if it helps the image of the revolution, although we disagree with it, we're gonna tolerate it. Mm. And that was, it survived first by the, having the director of the ICAIC be a friend of ours and sort of accepted the film because the first film where they criticized Fidel, there's a billboard of Fidel and the character says that the Cuban people need someone to think for them. So it was the first time in film it initiated a sort of critical attitude in some, in some intellectuals, no? But mm -hmm. that was, uh, the, uh, the, the core of it was that, internationally it was accepted, and then I have, was not published for 20 years. I defected in uh, 79, and for 20 years, this memories is very popular in Cuba, but it wasn't published again. Only 22 years after when they adjusted to reality and, and saw that the situation could not continue that way, that they became tolerant and invited me back to Cuba. Walter, I wanted to ask you about what you were just describing, where the situation could no, no longer continue and people sort of woke up. I mean, the film Trumbo makes the decision to allow blacklisted writers back into Hollywood, sort of like this magical sort of alighted over thing. Could you talk about how did that happen in reality? You know, because how, you... How did what happen? Sort of how did these blacklisted writers come back into writing for... Well, um, the, the blacklist was always a function of the Cold War. Right. Basically. And the people in what you might call the entertainment business were not basically important to them except as publicity. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were really after the left wing of the labor movement. They were after the State Department. Those were bigger fish than, than we were. They went after us mainly, you know, so they could say, look, the big stars are on our side and get their names in the paper. It ended when there was, I think, a kind of a thaw in the Cold War. And I think probably when they ran out of communists, basically. There was, there was no, nobody left they could do with it. It kind of dissipated. It just, people, you know, started to get work and somebody got a job under their own name and uh, it, it gradually ended. And Cuba changed when the dream became a nightmare, when the dream of a socialist solution, uh, revolution and equality and justice, and then it became a matter of power. Then the leadership decided that all the dreams had to be controlled through authority and power, and that was, the, the power was a way of uh, understanding to some extent that uh, writing is an instrument. If you tolerate it, it's an instrument to release tensions. I would say that freedom is an instrument of a system. If you have power, if you have the power that be, you can tolerate it.
people let off, let off steam and feel they're justified and they, they have had their say. Mm -hmm. So letting people have the say why you still have control of the means of production, oh, let's not go into this gibberish about Marxism, but it is the, the attitude is more tolerant is what made it have a second wind. Mm -hmm. and, and now you even had reconciliation with the United States, no? I read an interview, sort of a semi-recent interview with you, Walter, recently, where you were talking about the current climate of surveillance monitoring in the, you know, with the NSA, and you know, you drew parallels to things that happened to you, where you know your mail was very clearly being opened and read, and certain people would be like, "Well, where were you? Who were you with?" And it was interesting, and it's crazy that you know we live in this time where everyone is being surveilled in great detail and it's all in the name of anti-terrorism and all this stuff. And there's really not that much art or film really, or at least popular film dealing with that. Why do you think that is? And do you see sort of a way out of that silence? It's all about money. Mm. I mean, they'll make the movies that'll make the money basically. During the blacklist period, they made anti-communist movies. You know. There are films now like Trumbo or like uh, Snowden, for example, which will deal with the surveillance uh, question. It'll change as the political picture changes or the culture changes mm -hmm. in some way, and, and movies will follow that like they always have. His experience are very different from mine because I believe that... Uh, Censorship meant that they considered the work interesting and valuable and threatening and dangerous. That they considered me dangerous to me made, gave me identity. And, and throughout the world I was published and recognized because I had been critical of the system. While when I came here, I could say whatever I wanted and yet I felt insignificant. And then I think it has to do a little bit with the money and entertainment culture, where no longer it's uh, the, your values or your principles, but it's the entertaining value of it. And no matter what you say, the system can incorporate, assimilate it, unless it's a massive thing. But within limits, uh, the system, especially uh, uh, capitalist consumerism, can absorb a lot of criticism. The system is... is enormously powerful and with a great ability to absorb and deal with. Uh, I mean, it, in this country, there haven't been, I mean, the system has not been basically challenged in any way. You know, even in the Communist Party in the time when I was in it, it was a question of a so-called revolutionary party that was trying, trying very hard to be good liberals and... Uh, but still, for example, I, to me, the most admirable person is Snowden, and to a certain way, uh, the anarchism of WikiLeaks is probably the uh, things that I respect in what is now my country, because I have, I'm an American citizen now. But, and I don't think there's much you can do. Uh, the purity of, of what Snowden has done apparently hasn't been found to be in any way sold out or sold to, got, gotten any money, any... He did it out of principle, which is very surprising, huh? don't you think? No, there's a kind of purity about him that's uh, remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's sort of interesting how 
Chelsea Manning, who is probably a far more cinematic cinematic character, I would almost say, where she had a very difficult early life and clearly part of she leaked all this information that some of which was actually previously available, just not in the form that she leaked it. She had a very hard upbringing. She was having a terrible time on the base and, you know, she was sort of she did it out of principle, but also she was sort of manipulated by the people she was in contact with online. So it's um, it's strange that she hasn't had a film yet, but we shall see. I wanted to ask you, Walter, like, you know, we're sort of dealing with the current state of not radical, let's say, but oppositional cinema in the U.S. You've written these different sort of films that were maybe more or less political. How do you approach the political in your own Films. I know you're working on a screen a screenplay right now that's sort of more you know actively engaged in that milieu. Oh, that I wrote yes yeah. with okay. the, with a uh, with a friend who's about a left wing lawyer. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, no chance at all of it ever getting done. I th- I think the only way that would get done was if, <clears throat> because it's a star part. If some star got hold of it and got behind it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I don't, I don't think today it would have, have a chance of getting done. And uh, I don't know, you, you, you pick your subjects. Uh, you try, as he, he said, to find what's subjective in them, basically. And uh, if you're lucky, you find that, that confluence of uh, subjectivity and objectivity your characters are living in a social situation and depends on how you show that social situation. What is it? Is it repressive? Is it uh, democratic? And you try to find your way through that. You both were talking earlier about, you know, the role of money and capitalism's ability to sort of absorb criticism. Do you see a way out of that? No. No. (laughs) Not today, anyway. Well, I think that the system is really overwhelming. I think I think one of the interesting things when I was in Cuba, everything, our ideology tend to simplify things into a single object. I think capitalism had the fact of diversity, that you could do a lot of different things. But now it seems you can do less different. Everything has to be related to money. There was money then, but there were people also writing novels and books and films. There's a variety of possibilities that the system had before that now doesn't. I think now that they should, I'd say in the second film that I was done for less than $10,000, a film that goes, uh, takes place in, in Cuba also and in Europe, and the guy did it with his own willpower to do it, Coyula, the second film, Memories of Development, mm-hmm. was done with nothing. He did it alone, with, he, he did the camera, the actors didn't charge anything. There are ways of doing film sometimes that don't have to go through this enormous expense. Well, I I think today one thing that's good is that because of technology, basically, it's a lot easier and cheaper to make a film. You know, you can do a film off your phone or or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so I think you you probably have more low-budget movies being done. I mean, you... The New York Times art section on Friday, for example, has a lot of reviews of films that you never heard of and probably never will hear uh, again. But they're being made. It's a question of what they're saying. 
do you feel like the number sort of dilutes the potency of any sort of potential message because there are so many choices that it's hard no, to... No, I think it's great. More the better. Do you feel similarly about the sort of the array of choices? Well, I, I think the thing is now it's depth has been lost and surface. There's a multiplicity corpuscle. The, the thing is fragmented to such an extent that you can do a lot of things, no? And But the more... You can spend less time in them. I think depth means time. You need time to ponder something. So things used to have more time. Mm. Even now, the whole process, whether it's, it's in fashion or in writing, it has to right away come out and disappear and reappear. Some, so we slide on a surface. Mm. And depth is a hole. You're deep only when you can stop for a while. Mm. And I think that is one of the things that's being lost, is this time to, to have an experience of an aesthetic thing. But there, the, the diversity is enormous. The surrealists believe everybody has to be a poet. No, I think art is an elitist thing for a few to create and to even to understand. I don't, like E. e. Cummings said the same thing, that poetry was not for everybody. And I don't think that everybody can be a poet or appreciate it. So I think that, that, that now everybody believes they can be a writer, I think that it degraded, it degrades the creative process that everybody thinks they can be a photographer, they can be a film director, they can, there's no hierarchy, and that prevents this, this quality thing from emerging. I, it's my experience, not only my feeling, my experience. Is that, I mean, you, you teach dramatic writing at NYU, do you feel... Well, I teach untalented people. Right. I think, I think that... <laughs> They're students. <laughs> I, I think that's what they have to pass to get into the class. I mean, any sign of talent. And, right. No, I think he's absolutely, he's absolutely right. I mean, you know, there's, uh, there's a debasing of the currency. But I like the idea that, you know, so many people are trying and they're doing it, and out of it will come something. Will, will come the occasional piece that has some depth and has some meaning. And, uh, you know, you, it, they all run into the usual question of uh, distribution, mm -hmm. exhibition. Who's going to do it? But they, now you have it on the Internet. You can... <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, yeah. Can, you have a whole new way of experiences, uh, the creative act... Sometimes it's very reduced, even quality. You can I'm sure there are a lot of interesting things that we'll never see. Before, it was less likely that a, a masterpiece would go un, unnoticed. I think today is more likely. But they're, they're all the ones that I read about. So many of them are affected, as they would be, by the culture that they're that they're made in. Really, you know, and it's a money culture, mm. and I find with my students, very few of them want to write personal stuff. They want to write uh, screenplays that they think they can sell to, to Hollywood. Mm. You know, uh, action, sex, whatever they see. Yeah, well, serious uh, writers and creators wanted to self-express. They didn't want to, to sell. And I say that is a whole new focus. You're supposed to be degraded if you thought in terms of, of success, no? Mm -hmm. 
even in, in the yeah. anarchist spirit of the Latin America. I mean, if you won the Nobel Prize, maybe you are good in spite of the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> and the yeah. same thing with Dylan. Now he accepts the Nobel Prize. I think he shouldn't have accepted <laughs> Like Sartre refused to accept the, the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Because I think when you become part of the, the system has its way of assimilating, and that's the power it has. And if it stops repressing, it'll, it'll last longer. I mean, there was a moment in the, the 60s in France where Sartre was becoming really a troublesome creature, uh, going to demonstrations that were forbidden, and somebody, an advisor of the Gaulle, said, why don't you arrest him? And he said, you do not arrest Voltaire. <laughs> <laughs> and... It's true. If you don't, if that is a philosophy, the system is going to last longer. The more tolerant, and people feel they can voice their resentment, it doesn't grow into an opposition that endangers the system. No, but as long as it's just letting off steam, I think art is not. It's going to work on your conscience. It doesn't. It doesn't work on action, in my experience. You were just talking about that moment in the '60s, and that's really when the concept of third cinema was coming into the fore and, you know, trying to come up with forms, not just new narratives, but literally new forms of expressing that were unique to a certain mindset, a certain country, a certain geography, um, a certain economic class. Do you have any feelings about third cinema, given that, you know, uh, I think it's worthless. <laughs> really? Okay. All that buildup. <laughs> I, I think that's all uh, mental masturbation. I, I think okay. you have to go... What do you mean by third cinema? So, um... The poor cinema. Curious ago, the, the, the cinema of the poor. Probably to have the distributors watching, but to, maybe today through the internet, you don't need, could be another type of cinema. But the mm -hmm. cinema that is done with few resources in little unknown countries, it's never, was never going to get... Cuba had a, the whole world watching it. I mean, probably it is the, the historical moment, the highest moment in Latin American history where it, it almost created a third world war with Cuba during the, the missile crisis. No? It became a, a world power, right or wrong. It, it could have created that and the guerrillas and Che in Latin America. But I feel that these things of, of expression of the poor is, doesn't work. You need the modern means and distribution and viewing and the critical approach to it as well. Films from like Brazil, the Cinema Novo movement, that would sort of fall under third cinema vaguely. But the Eastern European countries, they each went through some kind of flowering of of film, mm -hmm. basically. Poland with Vida, Czechoslovakia, Vida, Czechoslovakia with uh, Hungary with Yangso. But they had money and from the state. Yeah. I was going to say this, they were state financed. Yeah. And then it kind of stopped, really. Well, that, a lot of that was around the spring, you know, 68 sort of feelings like that. And then people who came after that, like Zulawski, having really a horrible time trying to get past censors or sort of push the envelope or do certain things. But I think that's, a, that's why I asked you earlier, sort of like that transition period. What is it like to experience that thaw? I think that answering what does that feel like or how you get there is sort of a can lead us to maybe a better solution for how we live now or get us to a different place from where we live now. You were yeah. uh, uh, men mentioned to me about the censorship and uh, the, the second film that that oh, yeah. Adea did. Yes. 
I think also there was a lot of tolerance. He did two films that were done because the government wanted to be critical of the interior uh, of the problem of bureaucracy. He wrote The Death of a Bureaucrat. But that was one that was seen positively by the atheist. Is that Alea? Yes. Mm -hmm. And Alea also did Strawberries and Chocolate, Fereza mm Chocolate, -hmm. which was also a moment where Cuba was being too severely criticized for being uh, anti-homosexual. and But actually, the film is is very poor. I mean, homosexuals make fun of it. It's a film in which the ne the men never kiss, for example, who yes. touch each other, <laughs> caress. And, and homosexuals say, that's, that's not about homosexuality. Yeah. So it really failed in the, in the sense of being creative of uh, something new, mm -hmm. which is, is different from memories, which was not in any way part of any repression on the country was challenging the 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 repression mm -hmm. but there are a lot of art the same thing happened in russia when when uh, solzhenitsyn wrote a day in the life of ivan denisovich it was because he wanted to attack stalin so he told solzhenitsyn to go ahead publish it <laughs> <laughs> and it was an extraordinary book but it and that's one where power and the artists coincide for once mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's 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 interesting the acceptable realm of criticism that can be state sponsored, you know. Well, I think the state should discover that the criticism and en en enriches them, guarantees their security as long as they have the control of the means of of power. Yeah. Power can tolerate freedom, while when you're a fanatic, you believe you have to repress. You're religious, ideologically uh, repressive. You don't make concessions. I think an essence in knowing how to govern with the system is not to be ideologically rigid. And therefore, you, you survive. I think that ISIS now, all this, the Middle East, is going to fail because they're too dogmatic. They, they don't uh, understand that you tolerate your enemy and you can vanquish him. <laughs> there has to be some air in the system. Yes. Otherwise, it'll turn in on itself. Diversity is in the laws of nature. Look at the amount of animal species, bats, there are a thousand species. Uh, diversity is, uh, communism tended to create a socialism, a rational, simplified way. No? And the many toothbrush, tooth, toothpaste, Che Guevara said, no, there should be only one toothpaste, who nobody needs uh, deodorant. Nobody. Suddenly, they created a logic that was destructive. The fact that you go into a drugstore, you have so many products. Mm -hmm. Diversity is a creative factor because they nurture each other, and the diversity in art and creation is 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 important. Nature does not satisfy one species. Or you go and see tropical fish. Look how many. And you know, at the prestige pictures, what those look like, end of year Hollywood releases, what those look like are very different from what they looked like, let's say, 20 years ago. Where now, give me an example. So something is, you know, it's very social you know social justice driven let's say so there are you know dramas about the the danish girl for example or something like loving which is coming up soon they're dealing with you know, or at least they're trying to deal with these larger social issues injustices not necessarily wedge issues but they're sort of like you know they're serious civil rights oriented let's say so narratively what makes those narratives successful or unsuccessful to you? Because but they by necessity, they sort of have to use a similar sort of form. There were always movies like that. Right. When things are on the, 
on the table or on the agenda, on the social agenda. Mm-hmm. Again, Hollywood will represent that to a certain extent. Right. And uh, they'll make a batch of movies on that. And they'll cull from that the ones that are successful and try to imitate them. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, with Hollywood, or I guess you would call it Hollywood, although there's a lot more independent financing than there ever was. It's a business, and uh, now it's all it's corporate. I mean, it's be owned by Comcast or or, or CBS. There'll be a few socially relevant, but there always were. That's the point right. I'm trying to make. Hollywood always found. I mean, you you read one of Kevin Brownlow's books, for example. He talks about uh, the films that were made very fairly early in the cent- in the 20th century. They're amazing the subjects that they that they took on. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, and even something like Broken Blossoms by D.W. Griffith is trying to argue a civil rights, a social social justice point. Let's say, but to you personally like what makes that that type of narrative successful you know as opposed to just something that is done to be a part of the conversation that's something that's just done again to sort of it be de- acceptable it, it, it depends on the individual artist it depends on somebody having some kind of talent i just saw a movie recently called moonlight mm. have you seen it yes did you like it yes i loved it i thought it was wonderful <laughs> you know there's an exam have you seen that no um, it's it's a it's a black film, very moving, very simple, and those will come along. Whether it's part of a trend of films, probably, mm. in in some kind of way, I would like to know where that will be in five years, for example. Will it run a course? Will it become part of the? Uh, I don't know. Mm. I think that all, all uh, one of the advantages of art is it doesn't preach. I think one of the problems that artists should never have an ideology or something to sell is Joyce said that when you had a, a, an agenda, it was obscenity, that mm-hmm. art that, that tried to teach you something was obscene. Mm-hmm. And the success of art is it doesn't want to teach you anything. It shows you reality. It shows you the contradiction. Shakespeare, or, uh, they're full of tragedies. and. That's why they're alive is because they don't uh, hide this portrait of what is happening. And what is happening doesn't find a solution, a way out. It's not ideologically teaching you anything except understanding of a broader world of contradictions. And as long as art remains aware of that and not sell itself either for commerce or for ideology or for religion, I mean, that is... Although you could say that there was not a single Catholic in the Catholic world painter that was against the church. Right. The whole of West Ren- Renaissance painting had no <laughs> attack on the church. Mm-hmm. So that makes you also think of this contradiction. Oh, the great, this great art, and it served the system. Yes. <laughs> the church was served for a couple of centuries, and everybody admired the... Maybe Uccello had something, the profanation of the, of the host, of a painting, in which the Jews are profaning the, the holy host. Well, that was an anti-Semitic thing. But there's, in the, I, was, I studied that. I mean, I was curious to know how come you can have a, an art 
because for many civilizations, Egypt, art was at the service of the system. Mm -hmm. And now we believe it should be against the system. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have to end it here. But before we close, as we always do, it would be great if each of you could say a film that you've seen recently that you liked. Do you want to start? You start. Okay. <laughs> he talked already yes. about Moonlight. Yeah, you already, yeah. You already got Moonlight Yeah, out that's there. what I would choose. Oh, really? Okay. Well, please, we'll say more, please, by all means. It's a simple story of the development of a black kid with a crackhead mother. And basically, what I don't know how to describe what he becomes because it's a very sad ending. He becomes what a drug dealer was who befriended him initially. But the sense it has of the atmosphere, how these people live, the hum it's a very human movie, I suppose, I think. It doesn't beatify the characters. I don't know what else to say, except it moved me quite a bit. Well, I saw Aquarius, which is Kleber Mendonca Filio's most recent film with Sonia Braga. Yeah, it's it's sort of like an instance of he didn't make it in response to the situation of Rizzo, the coup. However, it it, it was. What is it? It's uh, uh, it's it's about. It, it's a new film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was at the New York Film Festival, and now it's in theater. In release. Yeah. yeah. Aquarius. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he was, it's interesting because he used to be a film critic who made the transition to directing, but it's just a really great example of Sonia Braga's acting talents. And I don't know, I've always been a big fan of hers and it's wonderful to see her in, you know, a starring role. Anyway, well, thank you both for coming. This was wonderful. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.